Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2009 Schulman Lectures, presented by Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, addresses the topic of Darwin and Darwinism and are part of a university-wide celebration of the 150th anniversary of On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection and the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth. In this lecture, Janet Brown, Aramont Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University, speaks on Darwin and the challenge of biography. And I want to begin, I'm going to take a rather unusual view of biography. I want to talk about the history of biographies. I find it very difficult to talk about my own, but I'm going to try a little bit towards the end that I'm wanting to speak about the history of making biographies of Darwin. And if this comes up, I don't know if we need the central lights out at all. Are we okay? Can you, can you see this? Okay. I'd like to start with this photograph, which you can see is um, a black and white photograph from the late 1960s, early 1970s of a house in the country. It's in England. And it purports to show Darwin's ghost. Uh, taking, it's uh, infrared and it's taken at night. The house and garden aren't Darwin's property. They're uh, a neighboring house in the village where he lived in Kent in England. And according to the photographer, who's a noted ghost photographer, <laughs> uh, he can be seen here as an older man in his hat and cloak with his walking stick and the telltale beard. So I've shown this once or twice before, and I would be really grateful if anybody can spot him. <laughs> um, I've shown it to some undergraduates at Harvard, where, where you know, I'm at Harvard now, um, and they often seem to think something's going on down here, that there could be a shadowy figure in the undergrowth. And it's not so much that I'm wanting to speak about the literal manifestations here, and I don't want to talk about whether we believe in ghosts or the supernatural, and we know Darwin didn't, so if he is there, it, it would be a surprise to him. <laughs> um, my idea here is really to use this image as a metaphor about the biographical process for biographers are in the business of capturing ghosts. We create our characters. We choose words and we arrange documents to bring people alive again. And of course, biographers, like any historian, must work within the given documentary record. We don't make things up. But like actors, perhaps, writers need to interpret and create their characters. And the books that biographers write are necessarily created worlds, and the characters or the personalities of the people who inhabit them can be presented in a number of ways, and they can be made to say a number of things. So I'm going to focus this evening on the various images of Darwin, the various ghosts, that have haunted the many books about him. Um, my special theme will be Darwin's character. This was a topic on which he was notoriously reticent. Even though he wrote um, what we now call an autobiography that he called 
recollections of the development of my mind and character, Darwin found it difficult writing about himself and was at all times a very modest man. And in those recollections was himself, rather surprisingly, unable to um, find in himself anything particularly special that made him the author of The Origin of Species. And this kind of ambivalence and ambiguity in Darwin's own recollections have left the field very ripe for a wide variety of interpretations. Um, the challenge of biography, then, is for me to pay due attention to the scientific concerns that drove Darwin, about which he was very frank um, and wrote prolifically, whilst also presenting a figure who was living and working in a specific cultural and social context and in finding a style of writing that's sufficiently objective and yet allows the reasons that uh, we or me are interested in Darwin to shine through. It's quite a, a, a lot that one asks of biography. And tonight, since we're in commemorative mode, at least I'm in commemorative mode, I don't know whether you are, but this, these 10 days are Darwin's 10 days. It's his, he's going to be 200 next Thursday, and um, it's his moment in the year 2009. Um, I want to follow through some of those um, biographical challenges through the decades since his death and ask what messages about science those books might be presenting. And in this, I hope to bring together the study of science and the humanities uh, in a spirit that Bob Shulman would approve. So the afterlives of prominent scientists are usually much more revealing than this. Um, Galileo, for example, has a wonderful tribunal in Florence. Newton, a monumental statue in um, Trinity College in Cambridge by Rubiak. Edward Jenner, and I know we have an Edward Jenner scholar in the audience tonight. Edward Jenner has his own corner of the museum in the old Welcome Historical Museum in central London, the pioneer of vaccination, a very Victorian corner in the museum. And uh, Claude Bernard has a wonderful chateau in the wine-making regions of the Rhone, where he brought his biochemical researches to a more, um, uh, um, a more digestive uh, conclusion. And Einstein has his T-shirt. So from very early days, commemorative objects of one kind or another have been produced to convey appreciation and respect for the great scientists. And Darwin was no exception. There are numerous artworks, ceremonies, statues, books, portraits, and memorabilia of various kinds that consolidate his memory. I just wanted to show you one or two of these before we talk about biographies. A wonderful portrait painted by John Collier, who was Thomas Henry Huxley's son-in-law, and painted Darwin and Huxley in these years, 1881, 1882, marvelous, evocative picture of 
Darwin as seen by his contemporaries. There are many portraits, but this is my favorite. Many statues, and this is my favorite. This is in the Natural History Museum in London, taken after Darwin's death from photographs, but again, a wonderful representation of a naturalist. Darwin's presented as a private gentleman. He is not dressed in a Roman toga or any of the kinds of classical uh, allusions to uh, mental abilities. He's ready to go out for a walk. It's a very fine statue. And um, again, you, will, you would see that in London if you were there this year. It's been brought out of storage to go back on display. <laughs> there were cartoons, of course. And many cartoons, I'm not going to dwell on this one, but you can see that Darwin comes into the cartoons and that something of his fame percolates very rapidly into the public arena through um, imagery like this. It's, it's Darwin himself as his theory. He is the ape of the theory of human ancestry. Many cartoons, and in the modern world today, this... Um, ability to inspire and to um, become an icon of science is very widespread. I've collected up a few to show you this evening, but there are many, many more. Here, for example, is a computer program that's named Darwin. Here is a rock band that's named Darwin, a European one. I haven't got any music to play to you, I'm sorry. Here is one way <laughs> of using the imagery of evolutionary, the evolutionary story. Not only is it called Darwin's Delhi, but there's the very well-known evolutionary sequence here <laughs> that is a direct derivative of Huxley's famous image uh, taking you through the evolutionary stages of primates from uh, Gibbon, in Huxley's case, through to humanity. Many variants on this kind of image, such as um, Homer Simpson pushing this through. And then, I think that's my last, ah, yes, wanted to take you there. Um, so, Darwin has a public presence today. He's very much in our minds, uh, possibly even more so now than he was in 1859. And like Newton, or Galileo, or Marie Curie, let's say, or Louis Pasteur, or many other noted scientific figures, there are a good few shelves of Darwin biographies. Depending on how they're defined, um, there were five or six published in English very rapidly, very soon after his death, um, then there was a lull until a cascade of writings uh, published in 1959 uh, when the centenary of the origin of species was celebrated. And today, 50 years further on, there have been uh, a large number of studies, uh, some 30 or 35 biographies, and if you make a web search uh, in any large library, there's about 2,000 other items relating to Darwin and Darwinism and his impact. He's clearly had a tremendous afterlife in written form. 
And the most enduring question that all these books address in one way or another is how did Darwin become the man who wrote The Origin of Species? How did he change from um, an enthusiastic and very knowledgeable amateur naturalist into one of the greatest biological thinkers of the modern era? And Darwin has very little to tell us about this. Uh, he acknowledges his early love for natural history and his passion for collecting objects. And in later life, he came to understand that this was an urge that might have been satisfied by collecting anything, even postage stamps or biscuits. I was very surprised when he mentioned biscuits. Um, his recollection was that his time at university was mostly wasted as far as the curriculum went. Now, we can add a great deal to this. We can take a much more sophisticated view of this young man, particularly the young undergraduate. Yet this image of carefree unsophistication, of carefree innocence, was important to Darwin himself. He wanted to tell his own story in his own way. And he always believed, as we do today, that the Beagle voyage was the turning point in his life. It was the voyage that made him what he became. And as he said in those autobiographical recollections, the voyage of the Beagle has been by far the most important event in my life and has determined my whole career. And I just put up an image of the Beagle. It was taken after Darwin's voyage on, on it. It had a third voyage uh, to Australia captained by Owen Stanley, and this is Owen Stanley's watercolor of the ship, relatively unchanged in Sydney Harbor. And nowadays, we are pretty confident in saying that the rest of Darwin's life after the Beagle Voyage was devoted to exploring the idea of evolution. Um, many of his greatest achievements uh, very wonderfully for the historian, were written down. Darwin learnt on the Beagle voyage to write things down. Some um, aspects of this one can understand from looking at these marvelous objects. These are from notebooks from the Beagle voyage. We know also that he made notebooks after the Beagle voyage in which he put all his transmutationary thinking. The notebooks have a big place in Darwin's intellectual life. And for the historian, isn't that fabulous? They're, they're, he wrote things down, and they, he kept them. And we still have them. So there are very many things that um, the Beagle Voyage did for him that are also good for us. He continued to work on his theories through those years after the Beagle Voyage that took him towards writing The Origin of Species, the book that we will be celebrating this year. And we can now see, extra to Darwin's account of this aspect of his life, that it was the voyage that turned him into a well-trained expert. It gave him self-discipline. It gave him the tools of his business, tools of his trade, and not least, the ability to write it down. It provided him an opportunity as well 
And this is one of the key features of the origin, the book. It gave him an opportunity to dwell on large, all-embracing questions and at the same time providing precisely focused detail that would uh, help address those large questions. This is one of the key aspects of the origin of species. It's full of detail, but it's addressing amazingly large um, issues that are still large today. The voyage gave him self-confidence, and it gave him a network of colleagues who were eager to welcome him back when he arrived home. I want to just move to this. Now, the founding document in the biographical tradition from, of Darwin was a very conventional form of Victorian biography, the life and letters. It was prepared by Darwin's son, Francis, published in 1887, with a follow-on set in 1903. <clears throat> and Francis Darwin, this is the frontispiece from that volume, Francis Darwin brought personal knowledge, quite considerable literary skill, and a scientific understanding to writing about his father. And these books are much better than one might hope or might expect. The chapter um, Francis Darwin included a chapter of recollections from friends and from the family about Darwin. And he included a shortened form of Darwin's own autobiography, uh, which was innovative in revealing the private Darwin, or at least something of the private Darwin, for the first time. And throughout these recollections and throughout these volumes of letters and connecting materials, Darwin was described as a loving father, as a good friend, a courteous correspondent, socially respectable, intellectually honest, and personally humble, as a man who had accumulated a mountain of evidence that was presented in The Origin of Species, who stood apart from controversy, and who nobly endured lifelong illness. So there are a number of themes that are being made apparent in this first form of biography that are accurate, but they're nevertheless highlighted as the key aspects of Darwin's character and his life. As the sun painted it, these fine, simple qualities were crucial factors in Darwin's intellectual success. Now, nowadays, it's partly the role of historians to spoil the party. Uh, we always come in and say, well, it wasn't like that, you know. Um, nowadays, we can understand some of this emphasis on Darwin's humility and his honesty as the Victorian equivalent of credit-building. Um, it's a credit-building process. It's been described by the social historian Stephen Shapin in 17th century science. We can see it here in 19th century science. It was important for late Victorians to believe that science was carried out by 
trustworthy, respectable men, almost always men, who did not seek to overthrow the church or the political establishment or who were radical revolutionaries in any way. I got some remarks from other biographies about the same time that drew on this source on Francis Darwin. No words can be strong enough, said the American biographer George Woodbury in 1890. No words can be strong enough to express the moral beauty of Darwin's character. Here's another one. He was marvelously patient and successful revolutionizer of thought. Enough of his character shone forth in his work to indicate his tenderness and goodness. A life of singular purity, thought Charles Frederick Hodder. One more, translucent truthfulness, said Henry Fairfield Osborne of the American Museum of Natural History. So Darwin's modesty and his honesty were here being foregrounded um, because they were felt to have contributed materially to convincing contemporaries of the validity of his evolutionary views. I've got a couple more images of Darwin to show you here. This is from The Life and Letters, uh, 1887. That's why it's rather a dull picture. And I brought three of the frontispieces to show you. And they are very dull, but that's the point, that they remind us just how restricted the imagery was of Darwin in that period, the 1880s, the 1890s, that most people felt that they would recognize Darwin from these images that were very widely distributed in the Life and Letters. Darwin at the time of the origin being published. Darwin as an older person uh, on the veranda of his home in Kent. Uh, this was derived, it's a photogravia, from a photograph taken by his oldest son, William. And Darwin as an even older person. Uh, this is a studio, again, derived from a studio photograph. Uh, well. It was taken by studio photographers who came to Darwin's house and photographed him here in a cape and black hat outside on that same veranda where he was sitting in the wicker chair. They're powerful, evocative pictures that speak to some of the um, wisdom that we feel Darwin possessed. Um, most of all, in these early biographical accounts by Francis Darwin, Francis portrayed his father as a hard worker. And to showcase this mental labor um, was another significant biographical move that took its impetus from the very busy, productive, self-made man of 19th century industrial society, as described by Samuel Smiles earlier ideas of the uniquely inspired genius uh, promoted by Thomas Carlyle and Ralph Waldo Emerson, or the romantic hero as embodied by Humphrey Davy, Goethe, Keats, or even Lord Byron, were becoming supplanted in British thought, at least, by Samuel Smiles's eulogies of honorable toil. Uh, shift away from the terminology of genius uh, 
towards exertion. And these notions of industriousness contributed very much to new ways of thinking about science that were emerging in Europe and North America at the end of the 19th century. Um, great thinkers were being rewritten as great workers. Looking back over history, Samuel Smiles said that Louis Pasteur, for example, was noted, noted for extraordinary scientific perseverance. Doesn't talk about all the uh, uh, um, exceptional uh, laboratory work and his effect on bacteriology at the time. He, was a per he persevered. Uh, going back in time, Samuel Smiles also said, Tycho Brahe hardly left his observatory for 21 years. He was so busy making the observations. Um, less further back in time, Smiles characterized William and Caroline Herschel, the astronomers, for their patient and laborious lives observing the stars. And then in a little throwaway phrase, which I've always liked, he says, even Pliny, the uh, great Roman, later Roman historian, never relaxed except in his bath. <laughs> so celebrated figures at this moment in Victorian um, culture were thought to be careful economists of time. So the, the Victorian Darwin, I think, this is a suggestion, it's not an uncontested remark, um, Darwin was presented in biographies as an industrious man for the industrial age. He was revered as an independent thinker, completely dedicated to his work and nobly overcoming illness in a life where individual effort and achievement and personal virtue were, the, were heavily featured. Now, a very different Darwin emerges in the biographies in the aftermath of World War I. I'm skipping a lot, as you can see, but um, the interwar period was very interesting, biographically speaking. Hard work and virtue gave way to an emphasis on inner turmoil. The 1920s and the 30s saw those authors who wrote in English turn towards the interior life of men and women, answering a new psychoanalytic call to acknowledge the many-sided self and a search for greater authenticity in representation. Biographers in that period experimented with modernism, and they felt that their special focus on human character contributed significantly to the literary restructuring of the period. It was the day of the biographer, wrote Hesketh Pearson in 1930, um, a biographer himself whose first publication was a study of Dr. Erasmus Darwin, our Charles's grandfather. And there was a great deal of theoretical consideration of life writing, taking its uh, framework from Lytton Strachey, of course, Andre Morois, Emil Ludwig, Leslie Stephen, and Edmund Goss, appearing most obviously in, the, uh, in Britain in the writings of Virginia Woolf and Harold Nicholson, and more intriguingly in America in those of Gamaliel Bradford, uh, 
who advocated a new genre of psychography. And I would love to know if you know Gamaliel Bradford, because I was completely unaware of him until I started doing the research for this um, paper. And he's fascinating. He wrote a number of really interesting psychobiographies in the 1920s and wrote an excellent short study of Darwin in 1926. And he's one of the very first to ask the modern question, what kind of man was this? I'm, I'm very impressed with him. And so Bradford and others thought deeply about the question of creativity and character. They thought about individuality in very interesting ways. Nora Barlow, one of Darwin's granddaughters, was one of these new breed of biographers. She uh, lived and worked in Cambridge and here is photographed, I would say, in the early 1920s. She worked um, as a geneticist with William Bateson in Cambridge in England and also began to explore the origins of Darwin's evolutionary ideas as a historian. She sought to understand his motives. And though she didn't write a biography as such, she was highly innovative in bringing unpublished manuscripts to the fore, especially those from the Beagle Voyage. And she reissued the full version of Darwin's autobiography, uh, actually a little later than this, uh, in, in 1958, and worked carefully to try and explore Darwin's intellectual development. <coughs> so Gamaliel Bradford and Nora Barlow both considered Darwin as one of the secular moderns. And to them, the fading of religious belief was the, was the key to the rise of science. And they set about publicizing Darwin's loss of faith in order to promote what they were seeing in their time as the new dawn of secular humanist thought. And one of the key issues about um, Nora Barlow's republication of the autobiography, we've just had a wonderful seminar with students discussing this, is the way Barlow puts back Darwin's comments on his religious belief. They had been taken out in the first version. Barlow puts them back. It's a, a, a great book. So these two figures considered Darwin as one of the one of the moderns. Interestingly, neither of them really used archival sources in the way that we would now to hunt out the inner man. Um, they, Nora Barlow was a member of a family that gave very generously to Cambridge University Library the majority of Darwin's papers. They were um, a, a very large bequest in the post-war period and were not very widely used until really after the Second World War. They were given in the interwar period but were not explored in the way that historians now use them. So that these two books that I'm um, mentioning, 
really didn't have much manuscript research embedded in them. They worked with the published texts. So the theoretical notebooks that Darwin wrote after the Beagle voyage, the secret transmutation notebooks in which he first thought about evolutionary theory, these hardly feature in Nora Barlow's work or in Bradford's work. They were evidently not regarded in the same way as they are now as a talisman of creativity. Now, I hope I've got time to say this. As part and parcel of this interwar biographical effort, Darwin's house and garden were opened up to the public. They were uh, purchased and opened as a museum in 1929, and the refurbishings inside can be seen as a shrine or a temple to his mind and character as they were then perceived. And I like to suggest that's just as much a biographical statement as any written book. Um, it was furnished with the help of surviving family members. This is Henrietta Darwin, or Henrietta Litchfield as she was then, who wrote a wonderful life and letters of her mother, Emma Darwin, and helped her father, Charles Darwin, very considerably with his editorial difficulties. And William Darwin, the oldest son, am I right? It's Lenny, I'm sorry, it's Leonard Darwin, um, the second youngest son, who helped the, the restorers put the house together using many original furnishings, many original uh, scientific objects, uh, Darwin's hat and a scarf and his coat and a walking stick were all given back to the house, still on display. The compass that he used on the Beagle voyage, the telescope that he used, the, the sun hat that he had on the Beagle, all kinds of wonderful memorabilia were given back to the house through the family's good wishes. And the high point of the house was Darwin's study in which his personality sings out from this old photograph. This study doesn't exist in quite the same way now. It's uh, recently undergone refurbishment, uh, very accurate, uh, tactful refurbishment. But there are one or two differences. And of course, because it's black and white, it's very evocative. This was taken in the, uh, in the 30s and shows the study just as if Darwin had walked out for a moment. And there's one or two things you might like to notice. The family and friends in the photographs and lithographs around the fireplace, the chair in which he wrote The Origin of Species. And you see how he sat and wrote with a board on his knee or across the arms. He was very tall and had big casters, big wheels put on this chair to bring it up so his legs went down straight and then he couldn't sit at a table to write. So he had the board over, his, uh, over the arms of the chair. That's where The Origin of Species was written. It, I find it very moving still even to, to look at this. The dog, here it's a, a stuffed dog. The, <laughs> the, the uh, recreation was very literal. That the dog would 
sit with him waiting for the moment when work was finished and the, the walk began. And Darwin had a big house, nice grounds, a particular area where he walked every day. So the um, house presents a particular kind of Darwin. As an expression of his personality, it portrays science at its most domestic. Um, there were traditional gardens that I sh showed a moment or two ago. There was a country setting. There were old-fashioned furnishings. Um, and the study itself all demonstrated that Darwin's science in the 1859 and onwards was essentially domestic, it was humane, it was small scale, and it was far removed from the menace of the big laboratories, the chemical warfare that people during the interwar period were beginning to become anxious about. All Darwin had needed for his great work, you might think from this kind of uh, environment, was a pencil and a piece of paper. So the house was restored as a tribute to Darwin, implicitly declaring that scientific knowledge posed no threat. Darwin was presented in, in this period, this is the 1930s, 1927, 1930s, was presented as a clear-eyed observer of nature, a man whose domestic persona indicated that science was in safe hands. And this was at a time when science appeared to be very um, worrisome. And when the 1959 centenary celebrations of the origin of species came around, the ground was very fertile, not merely for biologists to promote the new evolutionary synthesis, but also to speak in a, a different way about how Darwin represented science. In the shadow of the bomb, after the Second World War, during the Cold War, the image of scientists again changed. At the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, Gavin de Beer, who was the director of the British Natural History Museum, wrote a biography of Darwin, uh, 1959, in which he cleansed Darwin from the social and moral contamination of what was then already known as social Darwinism. Um, he stated very emphatically, this is Gavin de Beer, stated that Darwin was not a social Darwinist, that he was virtuous, again, that he was responsible, that he didn't draw anything from Malthus's political economy. And if he did, but he didn't, <laughs> it was transformed into something biological. And uh, Gavin de Beer was working under difficulties, and in fact, a, a little sort of uh, bibliographical aside, Darwin's evolutionary notebooks were very useful to him throughout his writing career. And when there was something Darwin wanted to use in a particular way, he would cut it out of his notebook, put it in a pile of the bits of information that he was gathering for particular chapters or for a, a different book. 
So those excised pages were not in the notebooks when the notebooks came to university library archives. They were known to be excised because the pages were all numbered and suddenly there wasn't a page 38. And, and then, so they were known about, but nobody knew what they had written on them. And they were only found after Gavin de Beer wrote. By chance, uh, not by chance, the page on which Darwin wrote that he had just read Malthus and that this was my theory of natural selection was of course important to Darwin. So he cut it out to put it on the pile where he was going to write the chapter of the origin that related to that. So that page was not known about when Gavin de Beer wrote his biography. So it was possible for Gavin de Beer to say, Darwin got nothing from Malthus. We know about it from other sources. Darwin says in his autobiography, he read Malthus and thereby had a theory by which to work. But the evidence of what he had got from Malthus was not available uh, until a little later on. But it doesn't negate the point that Gavin de Beer didn't want Darwin to be held responsible for some of the horrible consequences of what was then thought to be the Darwinist way of life, the warfare, the competition, the international strife of that post-war period. Similarly, Julian Huxley and the great biologist Ernst Mayer forcibly separated Darwin from the consequences of Darwinian theory when applied to human society. And another thing's different about the books at this point, that the Galapagos finches first make their appearance in the story, that it was not fully understood until the 1950s the role of evolutionary diversification in Darwin's thinking, and it had not been possible to explore the Galapagos in the way that we now know them, so that David Lack, who was an Oxford biologist who went to the Galapagos to look at the bird life in the 1940s, Lack wrote a book about Darwin's finches and brings them into the canon. They only really start being part of the Darwin legend in the 1940s and 50s. And another element of these biographies that intrigue me is the way that Darwin's personal integrity is also emphasized so very much. We know he had a great deal of integrity. It's just brought again to the fore as a specific element in a bi biography, particularly the great probity with which he engaged with Alfred Russell Wallace, who had very nearly the same theory of evolution by natural selection. Wallace wrote to Darwin. They were already corresponding a little bit. Wallace wrote to Darwin from um, Malaysia, enclosing a sketch of his ideas of evolution by natural selection, which arrived, we suppose, in uh, June in 1858. And as Darwin unwrapped this essay, he saw that it was his theory as developed by somebody else. 
And this moment has had great attention paid to it. There's a great deal of interest in whether Darwin played hard and loose with Wallace. Was he as um, generous as he could have been? How did Wallace feel about this? And Wallace was three months away in correspondence terms. And Darwin was devastated, as one might expect. The biographies of this period in the 1950s, when they deal with this moment, for the most part, look at it from Darwin's point of view. And they emphasize Darwin's generosity, his honesty, and his commitment to making sure that Wallace got the credit. Nowadays, we write it slightly differently. But this was um, a very commonplace way of looking at this moment. And this is an imaginary painting, 1955, by a great Russian biologist, Viktor Estafiev, a, a, a geneticist, who made six such paintings recreating scenes from Darwin's life that he sent to the new Darwin Museum in Darwin's house uh, in the 50s. And it's Darwin here, reading the letter from Wallace. Entirely fictitious. We have no way of knowing what this scene might have looked <coughs> like. We don't even know that it was a letter like that. It could have been a whole kind of unfolding, thin Singaporean paper. And it includes Charles Lyell and Joseph Hooker in the scene, the other side of the table, who were not there. And they were the people who persuaded Darwin that he must publish, that one of the ways through this terrible moment in Darwin's life was to jointly publish with Wallace, that Wallace's essay should go forward for publication as he had asked Darwin to ensure, but that Darwin should rapidly put together a paper of his own, and that should go forward together, and that Lyle and Hooker would handle it. And that's where we might write the story differently today. They take these joint papers, which were in no sense joint. You know, they were two, but they weren't joint. Take these papers to the Linnaean Society, where they were read by Lyle. And this was the first public announcement of evolution by natural selection. Wallace didn't know about it until three months later. But so it's a, a big moment in both of their lives. And this image that I've brought to show you, I think, says more than just a kind of a fictitious uh, recreation of a scene. I think it has Lyle and Hooker in there to serve as witnesses to Darwin's gentlemanly behavior. When he's confronted with the duplication of ideas by Wallace, that he takes it to his friends. And because they're all gentlemen of science, they handle this in an appropriately gentlemanly way. So this Darwin, this Darwin of the 1950s took shape as a principled figure. He was committed to maintaining ethical standards and responsibilities. Um, 
In fact, rather as some of the biological writers of the period saw themselves. Now I'm going to come up to an end now. Um, today, we work very hard to reconstruct the world in which Darwin lived. We try to um, think about the problems he solved and the resources on which he drew for answers. And this has meant dismantling the traditional account and um, revisualizing the imagery. We're probably just as embedded in our own images as the people I've been speaking about, but we can't see them because we live in our culture. So undoing and replacing these accounts has occupied the professional life of many of us for several decades. But the one thing that the Darwin industry has demonstrated in the last 50 years, since the last commemoration, is that the Darwinian revolution was not really a revolution. There were lots of people who were also working in this area. And it was not solely due to Darwin. And there were other figures, like Herbert Spencer, Robert Chambers, or Wals Alfred Russell Wallace himself, who at the very least need to be included. And that there were long-term factors that were moving 19th century culture into new areas that, uh, like secularization, professionalization, industrialization, and economic change. They all need to be addressed. And uh, Professor Turner, Frank Turner, uh, was one of the first to show how important it is to acknowledge the rise of scientific naturalism through the 19th century, and that Darwin isn't the person who makes it happen. He's part of major changes. He's very important in those changes, but they're already underway when Darwin wrote. So historians have developed this story very significantly since the first biographies were published. Um, much of these changes were very magnificently achieved in a biography by Adrian Desmond and Jim Moore, published in 1990, that embedded Darwin in his cultural context. And it offered readers a very well-articulated social account of Victorian science, Victorian culture. It's deservedly famous. And I, too, have written on Darwin, and my approach was slightly different from Desmond and Moore, who are close friends of mine, in that I was interested in the way that knowledge circulates around, how it's made and then gets distributed about, the way that private ideas ultimately become public. And as one of the things that I did that now, um, I mean, it reflects a tremendous amount of academic interest in Darwin's archive, his correspondence, his private papers. I tried to um, bring some of the delights that I had experienced in working on Darwin's correspondence project in Cambridge University Library. I tried to bring that to my biography to think about Darwin at the center of a network of correspondence, which is why I've just brought this lovely Victorian image of the postman's knock, that Darwin wrote 
a tremendous number of letters. He stayed at home, and he was not actively out there supporting his theory, but he did it by remote control. He was writing all the time to people who could help him, support him, answering objections, nudging people along. And I think one of the extraordinary changes in the uh, 150 years since Darwin wrote his book and the 130 years or so since the first biographies were being written is this understanding of the importance of archives to creating a character. So what do we find in Darwin biographies today? We find an extraordinary documentary record. We find a family. We find a domestic support system. We find Darwin being rewritten as the man at the center of overlapping circles of friends, neighbors, correspondents, enemies, and defenders. And biography is the only genre that allows us to ask personal questions of our subject, to ask them what makes them tick, how far were they even interested in science, and what was it like for the family to live with such a person. And so in its simplest form, I think different kinds of source material will generate different kinds of Darwin. Those people who focus on manuscripts generally find a more introspective and personalized Darwin who's anxious over religion, fretting over the ill health of his children. Those historians who focus on printed texts show him as a bold thinker, one of the boldest thinkers of the 19th century, a man who understood how his system of thought was contributing to the opening up of the modern world. So there's many opportunities for different Darwins in the present day. Now, my examples have perhaps been overly familiar to you, but they do suggest that scientific communities tend to create a consensus about what it is that's important about science. And in our own era, we place a lot of emphasis on the social conditions that make a scientist visible, uh, a theme that hardly appears in the earlier biographies that I've mentioned. It hardly appears before the 1970s. And I would like to venture, it's just a wild guess at the end of a talk, that science today is under examination in our own culture, and to some extent, those people who are now writing biographies of Darwin, they've probably mostly finished up because they'd be wanting to publish them this year. <laughs> um, not going to be too hot, hot sales next year. Um, those biographers will be dealing less and less with the details of the science and more and more with the cultural features that create a scientist. And so I began with a ghost. And um, it's very fair to say that Darwin is biographically elusive. He's a ghostly figure, uh, free for each of us to visualize as we wish. Thank you very much.
This lecture was presented in the spring of 2009 as part of the distinguished Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. These lectures were established to honor Robert Schulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. Professor Brown spoke on February 4, 2009 at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.